It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. Lots to talk about. HTTPS finally comes to the Brave browser. Are you worried about Chinese camera spyware? And a new encryption technology for lightweight platforms that might be good enough to replace it all. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 910, recorded Tuesday, February 14th, 2023, ASCON. This episode of Security Now is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get the password manager that offers a robust and cost-effective solution that can drastically increase your chances of staying safe online. Get started with a free trial of a Teams or Enterprise plan or get started for free across all devices as an individual user at bitwarden.com slash twit. And by PlexTrack, the premier cybersecurity reporting and collaboration platform. With PlexTrack, you'll streamline the full workflow from testing to reporting to remediation. Visit plextrack.com slash twit to claim your free month of the PlexTrack platform today. And by Fortra. The cybersecurity landscape is full of single solution providers, making it easy for unexpected cyber threats to sneak through the cracks. That's why Fortra created a stronger, simpler strategy for protection. They're your cybersecurity ally, working to provide peace of mind for every step of your journey. Learn more at Fortra.com. It's time for security now with the jovial, the happy, the ever cherubic. The effervescent. Ever effervescent Stephen Gibson, (laughs) a host of the show. And he's in a good mood today, despite the bad news that he will inevitably be bringing us, as he always does on this show. That's exactly, that is exactly the case, Leo. Uh, Actually, the the good news is a function of the picture of the week, which is just a real knee slapper. Yeah. Um, But we're going to answer some questions, as we are wont to do of late. Uh, What more? has happened with the ESXi ransomware story. Mm. Is malicious use of chat GPT going to continue to be a problem? What exactly is Google giving away? Why is the Brave browser changing the way it handles URLs? What bad idea has Russia just had about their own hackers? Why would Amazon change its S3 bucket defaults? Now who's worried about Chinese security camera spying? <laughs> and who has just breathed new life into Adobe's PDF viewer? What's on our listeners' minds? And what the heck is ASCON? And why should you care? Those questions and more will be answered on today's 910th episode of Security Now. Wow. It's one after 909. That is exactly it where is. I got that. That's how I came up with a number, Leo. <laughs> yeah, I just had one. Yeah, hey. It's called increment. You do that enough and you run out of digits. <laughs> Pretty soon you overflow That's the right. register and then uh, you're done. Uh, let us talk, before we get into the meat uh, and the picture of the week, which is hysterical, <laughs> let us talk about Bitwarden, everybody's New favorite password manager. I've moved to Bitwarden. Steve was talking about it earlier uh, a couple of shows ago. Um, it is the only open source, check, 
cross-platform, that's a must, Plat, a password manager that can be used at home, okay, at work, yep, on your mobile, on the go, yep, and is trusted by millions. Uh, we're all doing it, the Bitwarden switch. And you know what's great? It's very easy, no matter what your old password manager, to switch over to Bitwarden and then get all the benefits of Bitwarden. With Bitwarden, you can securely store credentials across personal and business worlds. I think anybody who listens to this show knows you need to use a password manager and probably gets asked a lot, especially these days, which password manager uh, do you recommend? Well, I recommend Bitwarden. I've been using it for a few years now uh, for a number of reasons. For individual users, it's free. Free forever because it's an open source product. So, you don't have to pay for Bitwarden. And I asked them specifically because some other password managers, remember, changed their free tier. I said, are you ever going to, you know, take back this offer? They said, no, we can't. It's open source. It's it's part of the we're, – we're not made to make a profit on the free tier. That's good news. Now, I still pay $10 a year for a premium account. I think that's a very fair fee. And I would pay it not for the features. I would just pay it because I want to support these guys. They made – such a great product. And because it's open source, you're going to see improvements all the time. In fact, we were talking about a memory hard password uh, derivation, uh, you know, hashing. We talked about PBKDF2 and why it's not memory hard. Steve's talked about S-Crypt and Argon2. Uh, in fact, a couple episodes we talked about somebody had submitted a pull request to Bitwarden for S-Crypt and Argon2. They've just they decided, you know, let's we'll we'll put S script on the back burner and focus on Argon too. And Bitwarden has said yes. In the next uh, version of Bitwarden, we will offer that as a password hardening option. That's really good news. Probably meaningless to the general public, but you, if you listen to our shows, you know that's a big deal, and that's what open source can do for you. It really makes a difference. Of course. As with any password manager, your vault is end-to-end -end encrypted. You know, they do everything right. They do do, they go one step better than that other guy <laughs> who shall remain nameless. They encrypt all the data, including the URLs for your websites that you've visited. There, there is no plain text, meta text that comes along with your vault. No, it's all encrypted. They don't track your data in the mobile apps. They do crash reporting, and if you don't like that, even that's removed if you're on an Android with the F-Droid version. See, this is where open source is great. People don't want something or they do want something. They can make those changes. The great thing is the Bitwarden community is vibrant, is active, and is always making Bitwarden better. Uh, you can review their library implementations if you want on GitHub. Uh, you can review the Bitwarden privacy policies at bitwarden.com slash privacy. Of course, you should always do that before adopting any program. But it's even more important, really, for a password manager, right? Protect your personal data. Protect your privacy with Bitwarden. Adding security or passwords with strong, random, true, randomly generated passwords, unique to every account. But you can go one step further because they have a username generator that lets you create unique usernames for every account. You can use any of the five integrated email alias services with Bitwarden. Our sponsor, Fastmail, works with it. Simple login, Anodity, uh, Firefox Relay, and now DuckDuckGo all allow you to create unique login names as well as unique passwords and still get the email sent to those names through those services. A masked email address. So now you it's kind of doubling the security. It has another benefit. If, if a company sells your 
email to somebody, you'll know exactly who it is because you have a unique email address for every single company, every single site, every single program you sign up for. I love this. It also keeps your main email address out of, you know, the lists. Uh, Bitwarden is a must for businesses as well. We're moving now, right now, to uh, Bitwarden at Twit. It's fully customizable, adapts to your business needs. They have a variety of tiers. There's a Teams organization option for smaller businesses, $3 a month per user. We're going for the enterprise organization plan, $5 a month per user. You can share private data securely with coworkers across departments. That's a nice feature. Uh, or the entire company. As we get closer to tax time, you'll love the ability to send you know, stuff that should really be private in an encrypted fashion to your clients, to your other uh, company uh, employees. Individuals, again, basic free account, free forever, unlimited number of passwords, cross-platform. One thing you might want to upgrade to the dollar, less than a dollar a month, the $10 a year plan for two-factor. And I, I really love it that Bitwarden lets me use a hardware a security key with my Bitwarden. I feel like that's even you know, even more secure. I really like that feature. To me, that's worth 10 bucks a month. There's also a family plan. Uh, if up to six users, you don't actually have to be in a family. That's just what they call it. Up to six users as a group, $3.33 a month. And you get a lot of additional features. Bitwarden supports importing and migrating from many other programs. It's very easy to move. We've we've all done it. Steve did it. I've done it. Look, if, if nothing else, please use a password manager, some password manager. If you want to use the best... Use Bitwarden, the only open source cross-platform password manager you can use at home, on the go, at work, trusted by millions of individuals, teams, and organizations worldwide. Get started right now with a free trial of the Teams or Enterprise plan or free forever across all devices as an individual user. But do me a favor so they know you saw this here. Bitwarden.com slash twit. Please use that slash twit because then they're going to know, oh, yeah, we saw this. Uh, on Twitter. That's really important to us. Bitwarden.com slash twit. I think we all agree this is the way to go. The way forward. Bitwarden.com slash twit. All right, I got your picture all queued up, Mr. G. <laughs> so big thanks to one of our listeners who actually encountered this when he was surfing on the web. The uh the upper portion of the photo is a is shows that they, they they was visiting the New York Times, and the text the tech fix column has the headline in this case: "Everyone wants your email address. Think twice before sharing it." And it has the subhead: "Your email address has become a digital breadcrumb for companies to link your activity across sites. Here's how you can limit this." <laughs> now. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, uh, the lower portion of the page says, thanks for reading the Times. Create your free account or log in to continue reading. What's your email address? <laughs> Very nice juxtaposition there. That's oh, awesome. it's just it's just perfect. So, you know, I've often followed a link there. And sure enough, the bottom part of the screen is saying, OK, you know, we're not we're not going to get in your face too much, but we'd like to know who you are. And unfortunately, in this case, it was, you know, it came up over the over the story about, you know, don't give anybody your email address, except, Whoops. you know, we're asking for it. Well, but see, so, if you're using Bitwarden, you could just give them that obfuscated address. Ah, and you're good. That's right. Yeah. 
That's right. Okay, so ESXi ARGS follow-up. We know that a story this big, you know, isn't going to immediately disappear. Um, uh, And, you know, so we have some follow-ups to last week's reporting on this. Um, First, and this was sort of caught me by surprise, I didn't realize that CISA, you know, our whatever the hell that stands for, cyber cybersecurity information security agency or something, uh, CISA, C-I-S-A, um, that they're as involved in various cybersecurity projects in an open source fashion. They've got a GitHub account, github.com slash C-I-S-A dot, I'm sorry, C-I-S-A-G-O-V. GitHub.com slash C-I-S-A-G-O-V. Anyway, CISA formally released an open source ESXi ARGS. You know, that's the ransomware that was uh, uh, messed up at least 3,200 individual uh, ESXi VMware servers. Anyway, a ransomware recovery script is what they've released. what what they've released. And so, you know, as I said, I've never really paid much attention to CISA's extensive presence on GitHub. Um, But examples of some of their projects, there's something called GetGov, which says building a new .gov registrar for a bright .gov future. Something, a project called RedEye, a visual analytic tool supporting red and blue team operations. CSET, a cybersecurity evaluation tool, and CrossFeed, external monitoring for organization assets. External monitoring for organization assets. So it's like, wow, there's a bunch of stuff there, which I really wasn't aware of. So anyway, uh, as far as CIS's ESXi ARGS ransomware recovery script, they wrote, CISA, has released a recovery script for organizations that have fallen victim to ESXi ARGS ransomware. The ESXi ARGS ransomware encrypts configuration files on vulnerable ESXi servers, potentially rendering virtual machines unusable. ESXi ARGS-RECOVER is a tool to allow organizations to attempt recovery of virtual machines affected by ESXi ARGS ransomware attacks. CISA is aware that some organizations have reported success in recovering files without paying ransoms. CISA compiled this tool based on publicly available resources, including a tutorial by Enes Sanmez and Ahmet Ayak. This tool works by reconstructing virtual machine metadata from virtual disks that were not encrypted by the malware. Remember, I talked about this last week that there was, that, that, well, well, I'll get into it more in a second. They said, for more information, see CIS's ESXi ARGS ransomware virtual machine recovery guidance. And then they've got a disclaimer with boilerplate about, you know, use this at your own risk and we're not making any representations and blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, and, you know, look at the script yourself, make sure it's safe for your environment and so forth. So, you know, not accept, assuming any liability for damage causing by using the script and so forth. Anyway, so th- this is quite cool. Um, we have the cybersecurity arm of the U.S. government being active, uh, you know, proactive uh, and posting scripts on GitHub to help mitigate what has become a massive problem. 
Okay, so that's the good news. <laughs> the bad news is that the very next day, uh, this, this was posted last Tuesday on Wednesday, a new version of the ESXi ARGS ransomware appeared, which rendered any such scripts uh, as this useless. Um, though it would still be potentially useful to anyone who was hit with the earlier version, which did not also encrypt the master VMDK file. Remember, I noted last week that it wasn't clear why the bad guys were not also encrypting the large system image dot VMDK file. Uh, I, you know, maybe they were just in a hurry to blast as many systems as possible in the shortest amount of time. Uh, and they figured that no one would know any better if they were just to encrypt the tiny pointer files. But they fixed that oversight. Now they're encrypting the main dot VMDK virtual machine image file. So there's no shortcut to getting, uh, one of these systems back. Um, and also, as I was expecting last week, those running open SLP honeypots did see the number of scanning IPs jump from three to more than 40. And, you know, while 40 is a large number and maybe some more bad guys got in on the act, it's also certain that with, a, a, you know, a story that's generating this much news, many of those scanners would have been security firms who were all interested in making their own assessment of the size and scope and, you know, scale of this problem. So I don't think that's 40 bad guys. It's probably half and half. You know, who knows? Um, and as a result of some of those scans, we also know that uh, that at least in some cases, reports have pegged the total number of exposed ESXi instances as high as 83,000. But those are not necessarily all vulnerable instances. Rapid7's use of their telemetry data, which was gathered through their project sonar, counted um, nearly 19,000 confirmed currently vulnerable. And so there's an example of somebody who was scanning the Internet, probably, you know, one of those 40 uh, or more that were seen touching honeypots. So they found 19,000, near, nearly 19,000 currently vulnerable VMware ESXi servers now connected to the Internet, not having the patch for CVE 2021-21974. So I also read one comment from a cloud provider who indicated that as far as they were concerned, their responsibility is hardware and connectivity and no more. And actually, I, you know, as, as a user uh, of a rack at level three, you know, that's, they're actually one step back. My rack was empty and I had to provide my own hardware. But all they're saying is, you know, here's a, here, here's a plug where you get bandwidth and here's some power strips where you can plug your stuff in and we're going to keep it cool and keep the lights on for you. Uh, otherwise, you know, nothing. But in the case, even in the case of a cloud provider where they are allowing you to use their hardware, they're providing that, at least in this one case, you know, their position was we give you the hardware, we it's going to be connected to the Internet, and it's, it'll have power. That's it. You know, the maintenance of whatever software the customer is running is the customer's sole responsibility. 
and they feel that this is true even when they, the cloud provider, were the ones who initially established the running software, including ESXi, on that machine. So that being the case, I, you know, I wonder again whether in like wondering how this happened, whether this might be a classic case of something falling through the cracks where each party believed that the other was responsible for its maintenance. So, you know, everybody was pointing fingers at the other party saying, well, we thought they were going to do that. And as a consequence, it didn't happen. So anyway, the consequences of all this were disastrous, and it'll be interesting to see whether any behavior change occurs from anyone as a result of this. And, well, there are a few, I think, uh, actually, we had one really neat piece of uh, listener feedback from somebody who works at VMware that we'll be getting to in a little bit later. Um, okay. Uh, Checkpoint Securities blog posting, a new one, is titled Cyber Criminals Bypass chat GPT restrictions to generate malicious content. Um, and so paraphrasing a bit what they wrote, they said there have been many discussions and research on how cyber criminals are leveraging open AI's chat GPT platform to generate malicious content, such as phishing emails and malware. Checkpoint Research's previous blog described how chat GPT successfully conducted a full infection flow from creating a convincing spear phishing email to running a reverse shell, which can accept commands in English. Checkpoint researchers recently found an instance of cyber criminals using chat GPT to, quote, improve, unquote, the code of a basic info stealer malware dating back from 2019. Although the code is not complicated or difficult to create, ChatGPT successfully improved the InfoStealer's code. So anyway, chat, uh, Checkpoint, you know, in, in throughout the rest of the article, they noted that there are currently two ways to access and work with OpenAI's models. The first is through the web interface, which is what, you know, 99.99% of everyone does, right? You just, you get the chat GPT web UI and you ask it a question. Um, and, and that's how you work with chat GPT, Dolly 2, or the open AI playground apps through the web interface. But the second is sort of the back door, which is the API, which is used for building applications, processes, and so on. And what that allows people to do is to present their own user interface that looks like whatever it is they're wanting to, you know, whatever surface it is, uh, service it is that they're, they're making available. And then on the back end, they're talking to OpenAI's uh, API in order to perform the actual work. As part of its content policy from the start, and we talked about this a little bit last week, OpenAI had created barriers and restrictions to minimize the creation of malicious content using its platform. Several restrictions have been set within ChatGPT's web user interface to prevent the abuse of the models. For example, if a user requests ChatGPT to write a phishing email impersonating a bank or asks it to write malware, ChatGPT will very politely refuse. And in fact, in, in their uh, 
in, in their blog posting, they they actually show, they showed the the web UI where they they wrote. Uh, I would like you to write a phishing email impersonating you know blank bank. And actually, they had blacked out the bank's name. And ChatGPT was very polite in saying, uh, no. Uh, and it explained what phishing emails were in case the person asking for one didn't know and explain also why it wasn't going to do that. So, you know, that's cool. And I have no idea how you impose those sorts of restrictions on something because I have no idea how any of this stuff works anyway. It's also, so and it's, I, I'm surprised Checkpoint doesn't know this, easy to trick chat GPT into telling you all sorts of things it's not supposed to. Yes, so, exactly. I, and so that's, again, and, and, and Leo, that, that, that's exactly my, my point. When I say, you know, how do you, how do you design restrictions on something which is chat, just chat GTP? I just, I just. Well, they, you know, when OpenAI released it, they said, we're, we want to see what you do with it because this is how we test it. That's how you test it. You put it, you let people bang on it, yeah. hack it, and then you can wow. figure out better controls and then put it out again and they'll hack it again. And you, this is the same process. All of this stuff goes through, right? Yeah. Yeah. You don't, so never know until you release it. Right. Uh, and they they are reporting that cyber criminals are working their way around Jat GPT's restrictions, and that there is active chatter in the underground forums discussing how to use OpenAI's API, where apparently there were no attempts to restrict this. I I got the sense that the the web facing restrictions were just sort of there, like. Like you know, like a like keyword hits or something. You know, it's like it, it seemed like a half baked approach. But they figured that they ha they had to do something for what most of the people would be using, which was the the, the web facing uh, uh, user interface. So anyway, it turns out that the underground has figured out that the API doesn't have these barriers and limitations. So what's now been done is they're, they're creating Telegram bots that use the API. The bots are being advertised in hacking forums to increase their exposure. The current version of OpenAI's API, which is used by external applications like this, apparently it's called GPT-3 model, which is connected to Telegram. It has no apparent anti-abuse measures in place. And as a result, it allows malicious content creation, you know, whatever you want, phishing emails, malware code, the stuff that the web uh, interface will, you know, at least somewhat push back against. In an underground forum, Checkpoint found a cyber criminal advertising a newly created service, a Telegram bot using OpenAI's API without any limitations or restrictions. As part of its business model, that is this you know, the cyber criminals business model, the criminals are able to access the unrestricted chat GPT backend API for an additional 20 free queries. You get, you know, 20 to get, get you hooked on it. And then after that, you're charged $5 and 50 cents for every 100 queries, which seems like a pretty good price. Okay. So, you know, my sense is, 
this will probably be, hopefully, this will be short-lived. You know, and can, can you just imagine what things must be like right now over at OpenAI? You know, they probably knew this was going to be popular, they, they, but they must have been surprised by this, this stunning, like, like overnight sensation that this thing uh, created when it came out. So, you know, I'm sure they're aware that ChatGPT is being abused for the back end, and I would not like to have the job of figuring out how to prevent that abuse because that seems like a difficult thing to do. Last Tuesday was Safer Internet Day. What a cute concept. Uh, Anyway, on that day, Google announced that they would be giving away 100,000 of their Titan hardware security keys to individuals at high risk of online attack. Uh, They posted last Tuesday, there's no shortage of security challenges for high-risk individuals. In fact... A 2022 study by Google and YouGov found that over half of journalists and professionals in politics have had their online accounts compromised. Not us. Nope. Nope. (laughs) Nope. The threats are intensifying. The stakes for individuals and organizations are increasing. And we're, we're, and says Google, we're dedicated to keeping online users safe, including helping people at higher risk of cyber attacks. They said, that's why on Safer Internet Day, we're announcing our new online safety and security partnership with the International Foundation of Electoral Systems, IFES, to provide free security training and tools to high-risk users. And this will be, you know, global. They said, this work is designed to help shore up the defenses of democracies that work for all. We're also building on our partnership with Defending Digital Campaigns, DDC, to protect U.S. political campaigns ahead of the U.S. 2024 elections. And we'll be distributing 100,000 security keys globally to high-risk individuals throughout 2023 at no cost. And they finished, in addition to our partnership with IFES, we're expanding our longstanding collaboration with Defending Digital Commands, that's that DDC, to equip campaigns with the security tools they need ahead of the U.S. 2024 elections. Through the Campaign Security Project, DDC will help secure campaigns in all 50 states, providing security training and products at no cost. Since 2020, over the course of our partnership, DDC has secured over 380 campaigns and distributed over 20,000 security keys. And we look forward to continuing to support DDC as we near a critical election cycle. So 20,000, and those those security keys were also provided by Google at no cost. So they're going to go five times that uh, in, during 2023 in order to, you know, really push out uh, security. And, of course, this is good advertising for the Titan security key. Um, and, Leo, it is quite sobering to imagine that more than half of journalists yeah. and political professionals have had their accounts hacked. I mean, I guess they're highly exposed. They're probably not super security conscious. They probably, you know, they may not like, you know, have an easy password because they need to let, you know, in some cases allow their 
their collaborators to, you know, sh- you know, log in as them to, to do something or, you know, who knows, but wow, certainly moving to stronger identity authentication is a win-win. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. This is an interesting story. Uh, last week we were talking, uh, about that default inclusion of those 40 top-level domains in the global browser HSTS list, the HTTPS strict transport security list, uh, and about the broader HSTS list in general, where domains whose TLD was not among those chosen 40 would need to explicitly add themselves to that global HSTS list, as I mentioned you know, I did with GRC.com years ago. Um, and I recall further talking about which browsers had finally started assuming that a URL entered without either an HTTP or HTTPS scheme specification would be assuming HTTPS was what the user meant unless that failed to function. Uh, and I recall at the time noticing that the Brave browser was not among those that had decided that it was time to switch. Well, last Thursday, the Brave browser project explained their intentions in that regard, and their explanation contains some interesting new information, although, well, it, it's well, we'll talk about it. It seems a little odd. So here's what they posted under the headline, HTTPS by default. Uh, they said starting in version 1.50, and, you know, <laughs> so I, I sort of had to give them some props for not being uh, version 150, like, you know, everybody else now. You know, version 1.5, that's cool. Anyway, they said Brave will include a new feature called HTTPS by default that improves web security and privacy by increasing HTTPS use. Brave will upgrade all sites to HTTPS, falling back to HTTP only if the site does not support HTTPS, or in the rare case, a site is known to not function correctly when loaded over HTTPS. They said, this feature is the most protective, aggressive default HTTPS policy of any popular browser. And I had to double check the date. (laughs) <laughs> on this posting because it's like, what? W- when did you write this? Yeah, but it was last Thursday. And they said, like, okay, maybe they haven't checked the other browsers, which have all been doing this for like two years. Anyway, they said, and speaking of Brave, will be available on Android and desktop versions of the Brave browser to begin with, with iOS coming later. Because HTTPS is critical to privacy and security, browsers like Brave are eager to load sites over HTTPS wherever possible. And yes, all the other ones have been doing that for a while. They said, and since many sites today support only HTTPS, it's simple to load these sites in a private and secure way. And encouragingly, more and more sites are being built or, or updated to support HTTPS only, or to use other TLS-protected protocols like secure WebSockets. Unfortunately, and this is where what they're writing is interesting, unfortunately, they said, there are many sites on the web that still support HTTP and some laggards that only support insecure 
HTTP connections. Brave's goal is to automatically upgrade these sites to HTTPS whenever possible. And then they said, i.e., in all cases where a site loads and functions correctly when loaded over HTTPS. They said, but deciding when to upgrade a site to HTTPS is tricky. In cases where a website does not support HTTPS, attempting to upgrade from HTTP to HTTPS will produce an obvious error. Right. Other sites support both HTTPS and HTTP, but do so from different domains. And they said, you know, as an example, HTTP colon slash slash example dot site versus HTTPS colon slash slash secure dot example dot site. Again, this feels like the 1990s, but okay. Anyway, and they say that makes automatic upgrades tricky. And still other sites appear to load correctly when fetched over HTTPS, but actually have broken functionality. Okay, well, now that's an edge case that is certain could be a problem. They said, in short, ideally, browsers would never load sites over HTTP, and browsers could automatically upgrade all insecure requests to HTTPS. In practice, though, it is difficult to know how, when, and if a site will function correctly when upgraded from HTTP to HTTPS. Starting in version 1.5, the Brave browser will use a new system for upgrading insecure HTTP connections to secure and private HTTPS connections. The new feature called HTTPS by default works as follows. If you're about to visit a page loaded over HTTP, Brave checks to see if the destination is on a list of sites that are known to break when loaded over HTTPS. Brave maintains this list of breaks over HTTP sites, which is open for anyone to view and use. And we'll be getting back to that in a second since it's interesting. If the requested site is on the list, Brave will then allow the site to load over HTTP. In other words, you know, no automatic upgrade. Provided, they said, that it's not on the list, Brave will attempt to load the site over HTTPS by upgrading the navigation request from HTTP to HTTPS. If the server responds to the replacement HTTPS request with an error, then Brave assumes the site does not support HTTPS and will load the site over HTTP. Otherwise, Brave's loading of the site over HTTPS will ensure a more private and secure connection. Again, interesting that they think this is, like, groundbreaking, but okay. Brave's new HTTPS by default feature replaces the previous list-based approach Brave has used since our first beta versions. In that approach, Brave used the HTTPS Everywhere list, which they say is a terrific public resource maintained by the EFF, to decide when to upgrade HTTP connections to HTTPS. But while the HTTPS Everywhere list is useful, it has two important drawbacks. First, the HTTPS Everywhere list is no longer maintained. Actually, I went over to the EFF wondering why that was, and they said, yeah, you don't need it anymore. (laughs) Everybody's using HTTPS, so just go ahead. Uh, And then they said, meaning that the list is increasingly out of date. Well, that's true because you don't need it anymore. Then they said, second, despite the best efforts of the EFF, 
any approach that uses a list of what sites should be upgraded is going to be limited as the number of sites on the web is enormous and it's difficult for the list maintainers to keep up. Brave's approach, by contrast, maintains a smaller and more manageable list of sites to not upgrade. So they're excited because they're flipping it upside down. Finally, more broadly, the main benefit of Brave's new HTTPS by default feature is that it has a better default. Right, it defaults to HTTPS. In its default configuration, HTTPS Everywhere would allow unknown, in, for example, not on the list sites to load over HTTP. Brave's new HTTPS by default approach loads the site over HTTPS, even in cases where a site is new or unknown. Okay, so, you know, it's not that this is not a good thing. This is a very useful improvement for Brave, and welcome to the club. Uh, you know, th- their use of an excluded upgrade domain list, however, is interesting. Um, nearly two years ago, I checked, it was on March 23rd of 2021, it was when Google announced that from Chrome version 90 on, the assumed default for address bar URLs that don't specify a scheme, you know, and really who's entering HTTPS colon slash slash every time anymore, would be switched from HTTP, which was the historical default, to HTTPS. So with Brave saying that some websites do not handle automatic connection security upgrading, I was curious about what would happen if I went to one of those will-not-upgrade sites. The list is uh, at GitHub under Brave Adblock hyphen lists master Brave lists HTTPS upgrade exceptions. And for anyone interested, I have the link in the show notes. Uh, and the second and third domains on the list jumped out at me since they uh, yeah. were uh, <laughs> they were Columbia.edu and www.columbia.edu. You know, but that was nuts. You know, uh, their presence on this list would mean that Columbia University could not be accessed by HTTPS. And again, what year is this? So I tried going to HTTP colon slash slash Columbia.edu and also HTTP colon slash slash www.columbia.edu under both Chrome and Firefox. And in every case on either browser, I was promptly redirected to HTTPS colon slash slash www.columbia.edu. In other words, they pre- pre- the redirection appeared to come from Columbia.edu because they saw me making an HTTP connection and said, oh, no, 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 you want to go over here. So, you know, it handled the redirect properly. Um, so, you know, it doesn't hurt to have them on the list. But it suggests that perhaps that list of 112 domains needs a bit of maintenance. And it actually, it would be an easy thing to do, right? All you have to do is have a bot go and try to connect to each of those domains over HTTP and see what happens. And if it bounces you over to HTTPS, you're good. Take it off the list. So 
you know, for what it's worth, again, that list was a total of 112 domains. We already know two need to be removed, so now we're down to 110. Uh, there was another one that jumped out at me. It was shakespeare.mit.edu. And I thought, okay, heard of MIT. Uh, what are they doing? Uh, turns out, I think someone tripped over the cord on that one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Nothing happens. HTTP or HTTPS, Shakespeare has left the building. So, uh, you know, that's just that that one's just dead. Um, And the other ones are really obscure. I mean, like you can kind of find among the remaining 110 some maybe interesting domains, but not really. So, you know, okay. in any event, for what it's worth, I wanted to let any brave browser users who may be listening Know that from 1.5 onward, Brave would be assuming HTTPS by default for any domains that matter to you, assuming that none of those 110 other weirdos don't. Um, so in that regard, you know, Brave is declaring, you know, for what it's worth, they're declaring this to be a huge innovation. Uh, but it appears to me that they are now reaching parity with the rest of the industry. And of course, that's good, too. And Leo, weren't you using Brave for a while, and then yeah, came I'm back, pretty much came... sticking with Firefox because I don't want to yeah. uh, a monoculture with Chromium, and so right. And I'm I'm now 100 percent Firefox. Yeah, that, that's and Firefox works great. Browser. It's it's fantastic. Yep. It has plenty of extensions. Yep. I I can't think of any reason not to use Firefox. To be honest. No, in fact, the thing that moved me away from Chrome because I was using Chrome a lot is I've got a little Intel NUC, uh, you know, a small little. Uh, integrated PC that I use in the evening. And when I would just, just opening Chrome, the fan on that little thing would spin up and it was like, what the heck? And and doesn't, you know, it's quiet when I'm using Firefox, obviously, you know, Chrome is just whatever it's doing. It's, it might be, it's like Chrome does an assessment of all of the apps that you have installed on your machine. Whenever you run it, there's like, (laughs) there's something going on. I know on my Mac, uh, if I have Chrome on the machine, uh, the way Mac is set up, uh, Mac OS these days is you'll get a notification when something puts a background application running in the background, which is nice. That's a nice security feature. And Chrome pops that up all the time. They're always, or it's Google, but I think it's from Chrome. Google's always putting something in the background. And I don't like the idea that Google's running stuff in the background uh, no. on, my, on my Mac. So that my mistake putting Chrome on there. And I only did it because there was a website that said, well, you got to use Chrome, which is kind of inexcusable <laughs> in this day and age, frankly. Yeah, really. Uh, I think it's time for our second break. Well, I think you're right. And then, then we're going to talk about uh, some uh, announcements from 1Password and about uh, what Russia has done. All right. Wow. Yeah. I want to talk about Plextract, the purple demon platform. Uh, lots of people have, uh, you know, security teams. They might have a, you might, you or your, somebody you work for might have a red team to discover, to pen test, to discover uh, flaws. You might have a blue team to remediate those flaws. You might even have a purple team. That's in the between of the two to communicate one to the other. And I bet you if you have a purple team, they know about PlexTrack. In fact, they're probably using it. PlexTrack is the premier cybersecurity reporting and collaboration platform, which completely transforms the way cybersecurity work gets done. Even if you didn't have a purple team, uh, 
Maybe you only have one team that does everything, tests and remediates. That's probably the most common situation. You need PlexTrack. You've got to report your findings. You've got to display them in a visual way. You might be spending a lot of time uh, getting data from a tool and porting it into a, you know, a Word document or and then and then into another do- and then an email. PlexTrack does it all. Are you ready to gain control of your tools, build more actionable reports, focus on the right remediation? Are you working to mature your security posture? And and frankly, you ought to be. Do what mature security teams do. Use PlexTrack. Optimize efficiency. Facilitate collaboration within your team. PlexTrack is the solution for you. It's a powerful and yet easy to use, very simple cybersecurity platform that centralizes all your security assessments, your pen test reports, your audit findings, your vulnerability tracking into one place so it's easy to remediate. PlexTrack transforms the risk management lifecycle, allowing security teams to generate better reports faster, to aggregate and visualize. Visualize is an important word when you're talking to the C-suite, right? Analytics and collaborate on remediation. Collaborate, that's another important word, in real time. The PlexTrack platform addresses pain points across the spectrum of security team workflows and roles. There's no better tool for managing offensive testing. In fact, once, once, the, once these red teams start using PlexTrack, they go, whoa, we're never going back. It makes it easy to manage the testing and then report the findings. You can put code samples in, screenshots, videos. They can be added to any finding. You can import findings from all the tools you use, Nessus, Burp, whatever, import them right in. So it streamlines that workflow. Plus, you can create custom templates because you're probably doing the same thing again and again and again. Create templates so that with a with a click of the button, it pulls the data in and pr- creates the report. You spend less time typing. Uh, analytics and service level agreement functions will help you visualize your security posture so you can quickly assess and prioritize to ensure you're tracking remediation efforts to show progress over time. It's got built-in compatibility with all the leading tools and frameworks, including vulnerability scanners, pen testing as a service platforms, bug bounty tools, adversary emulation plans. It means you can improve the effectiveness and efficiency of your current workflow. Robust integrations with Jira and ServiceNow ensure you're always closing the loop on the highest priority findings. It just, it just makes everything work easier and better. Enterprise security teams will use PlexTrack to streamline their pen tests and their security assessments and incident response reports and and a lot more. PlexTrack clients say they're getting up to a 60% reduction in the time spent reporting, a 30% increase in efficiency, and 5x ROI in year one. In year one. All in all, PlexTrack provides a single source of truth for all stakeholders, transforming the cybersecurity management lifecycle. You really need this tool. I'll tell you what, book a demo today. See how much time PlexTrack could save your team. You can even try it free for a month. P-L-E-X-T-R-A-C dot com slash T-W-I-T. See how it can improve the effectiveness and efficiency of your security team. Just go to PlexTrack.com slash twit. Claim that free month. Really, uh, when I talk to people again and again who've, who've tried PlexTrack, who've switched to it, they, they just they swear by it. Wouldn't you like to swear by your tools instead of swearing at them? PlexTrack.com slash T-W-I-T. Please use that address so they know you saw it here. 
That's really important to us. Plextrack.com slash twit. And thank you, Plextrack, for believing in Steve and security now and supporting the show. We really, really appreciate that. Uh, Plextrack.com slash twit. On we go, Steve. Yay. So uh, after we recently noted uh, uh, Bitwarden's acquisition of an open source passkeys developer with, you know, the outlook for passkeys support from Bitwarden looking good. I wanted to also note that 1Password has also just announced their support for passkeys. And interestingly, not as a holder of their users' private keys, which they had talked about doing before, but as a way for users to unlock their password vaults without needing to enter a master password. In other words, whereas biometrics, for example, are often used for convenience as a means of unlocking a previously supplied master password, what 1Password will be doing is actually using passkeys itself to fully replace all use of a master password, just as passkeys should be used. Um, they, As I said, they previously said that sometime in early 2023, meaning this year, they planned to become a passkeys-aware password manager, meaning that they would be maintaining their users' list of private passkeys. Um, this is what we're, you know, we're hoping for from all of the major password managers, and it's a feature that they're all going to need to support as passkeys begins to happen, hoping that it does. You know, as we know, the unfortunate adoption of passkeys, which is based upon FIDO2, means that users will still need to manage their private passkey keys. You know, right now we're managing our passwords. That changes to passkeys. And this means that just as we have it now, centralized cloud storage synchronization remains a practical requirement. And as we talked about this when it was announced, Apple, Google, and Microsoft will be doing this for their users within their own closed ecosystems. But really, practical use requires a platform agnostic solution, which is what the third-party pas- uh, pa- um, password managers will provide. So anyway, just a bit of news from 1Password. I know that we have a lot of listeners who are using it. We have a new term entering our lexicon. Russian patriotic hackers. <laughs> the Russian government, get this, has stated that it is exploring the possibility of absolving, quote, Russian patriotic hackers from all criminal liability for attacks carried out, quote, in the interests of the Russian Federation, unquote. Wow. Russia is choosing to become a true, fully Western hostile outlaw nation. The head of the State Duma Committee on Information Policy, Alexander Kinstein, told reporters at a press conference on Friday that an exemption would be granted to individuals located both abroad and within Russia's borders alike. Kinstein said... As quoted by RIA and TASS, he said, quote, We will talk in more detail when it receives more of a clear wording, unquote. So it's, you know, it's always been the, the case that the 
creation, use, and distribution of malicious computer software was punishable in Russia with up to seven years in prison. And since there have never been any exemptions to this law, many of the current pro-Kremlin hacktivists groups are technically breaking Russian law and could face prosecution, especially in the aftermath of a possible regime change. And, you know, on the idea of a regime change, nothing would make many of us happier. Uh, But this forthcoming exemption would allow pro-Kremlin hacktivists to carry out attacks with a legal carte blanche, presumably applying to groups who attack Russia's enemies, thus defining their alliance as being pro-Kremlin. So, wow. Basically, Russia's saying, yeah, uh, as long as hackers, Russian hackers, wherever you are, are attacking our enemies, that's fine. Go ahead and do it. We're, you know, we have our, I mean, not only, you know, tacit approval, but now explicit exemption yeah. from prosecution under Russian law. Yeah. I mean, we always suspected this, but now it's obvious. It's, yes. It's out. Yes. Yeah. Now, now it's policy as yeah. opposed to, wow. oh, what? <laughs> wow. So in wonderfully welcome news that immediately begs the question, what the hell took them so long? <laughs> Though, in fairness, that is a question that we ask on this podcast almost as often as we ask what could possibly go wrong. AWS has announced that, believe it or not, newly created instances of S3 online storage will be secured by default. What a concept. You you create a new S3 bucket and it's going to be secure by default, rather than insecure. Uh, I haven't seen this mentioned anywhere in the press yet, but I received a notice directly from Amazon because I'm an AWS S3 subscriber. I use AWS as my sort of my master cloud cold storage archive. By that, I mean that I rarely transact with it. Uh, For example, I have a huge amount of static data sitting there. Uh, Many years ago, I ripped and stored my lifelong collection of prized audio CDs. For safety, the uncompressed WAV files are stored in multiple locations, and one of those locations is S3. Every month, I receive Amazon's storage bill, and I just shake my head since it's like $2.53 because Most of what Amazon charges for is bandwidth usage, and mine is zero. So S3 is, you know, for like that kind of off-site glacial storage, it's a bargain. Anyway, as a consequence of being an an AWS S3 subscriber, I received some very welcome news via email last Tuesday. Amazon wrote, hello, we are reaching out to inform you that starting in April... 2023, Amazon S3 will change the default security configuration for all new S3 buckets. For new buckets created after this date, S3's block public access will be enabled. (laughs) How could somebody even write this email with a straight face? It's just just astonishing. As you know, we're fair warning. 
starting on April 23, we're going to, you know, turn on security. Wow. Uh, block public access will be enabled. And they said, and S3 access control lists will be disabled, meaning that, you know, rather than having granular control over what's what, we're just going to block all public access. So you don't need an ACL. They said the majority of S3 use cases do not need public access or ACLs. Yeah, like I said, what the hell took them so long? They said for most customers, no action is required. If you have use cases for public bucket access or the use of ACLs, you can disable block public access or enable ACLs after you create an S3 bucket. In these cases, you may need to update automation scripts, cloud formation templates, or other infrastructure configuration tools to configure these settings for you. To learn more, read the AWS News blog, link one, and what's new announcement, link two, on this change, or visit our user guide for S3 block public access, link three, the S3 object ownership to disable ACLs, link four, also, see our user guide for AWS CloudFormation on these settings, links 5 and 6. If you have any questions or concerns, please reach out to AWS Support, link 7. And for anyone who is an AWS user, did not perhaps receive this email, I have uh, all the links there, all seven of them, in the show notes. Uh, you know, and wow, when you think back over the the hundreds, it must be, okay, we're episode Nine, okay, maybe not hundreds. We're 910. We don't talk about AWS insecurity one out of every nine episodes. But, okay, many, <laughs> the many times we've talked about AWS being exposed and compromised on the Internet, presumably without its owner's knowledge. The fact that block public access had never been active by default for a cloud storage provider, just boggles the mind. We kind of so, knew that, though, right? I mean, it's, oh my <laughs> it God. so often that it's, it's, you know, it's obvious that's the default. Yes, right. It's the tyranny of the default. Yep. It's like we're, you know, users just assume that Amazon would not do this. And until now, they have been. So, you know, again, props to them. But, wow, what took you so long? Okay, so more anti-Chinese camera removals. The article appearing in The Australian last Thursday was titled Chinese Surveillance Cameras in Our Halls of Power. And it's apparently intended to induce concern because the article begins almost 1,000. <laughs> oh, my God. That's almost 1,000 Chinese Communist Party linked surveillance cameras and other recording devices, some banned in the U.S. and Britain, have been installed across Australian government buildings, leading to calls for their urgent removal amid fears data could be fed back to Beijing. Government departments and agencies have revealed at least 913 cameras intercoms, electronic entry systems, and video recorders developed and manufactured by controversial Chinese companies Hikvision and Dawa 
are operating across 250 sites, including in buildings occupied by sensitive agencies such as Defense, Foreign Affairs, and the Attorney General's Department. Australia's Five Eyes and AUKUS partners in Washington and London moved together in November to ban or restrict the installation of devices supplied by the two companies, which are both part-owned by the Chinese Communist Party. Okay. Uh, As we've previously covered... The U.S. and the U.K. did take similar steps to remove the cameras produced by those two companies from their respective government networks. And yes, as we all know, in a closed design, closed source world, it is possible for such devices to get up to some mischief. And I suppose that in some settings, you know, a stream of encrypted communications flowing across a government network might go unnoticed. I probably wouldn't surprise anyone. But more worrisome is that such a device might be a launching and jumping off point for malware that's waiting to spring. As global political tensions rise and as more and more of the physical world is subsumed by the cyber world, cyber protectionism seems inevitable. And we're certainly seeing its rise now. Since anything can be buried and hidden in the most innocent-looking chip, there isn't any real defense against the but-what-if question. Because what-if could be a true potential threat. If a, if a competent technologist was to testify in front of a congressional committee on international cyber threats and was asked if they could absolutely positively assure that some device has no ability to do something malicious, they would have to answer, uh, no, Senator, because, you know, it's, it's possible, you know? And so, you know, I, I mean, we're sort of stuck in this conundrum. I mean, I, I do think that there's no alternative than for, vetted local technology companies to produce the technology that is being used by that local government if if the government wants as much assurance as possible that there's no hanky-panky in any of the technology that they're, that they're using. Um, I mean, there just isn't any way around it. I mean, and, you know, there's the, there's that paranoia factor. Leo, how many years have we, was that, there there, there was that NSA key that people thought was in Windows? Mm-hmm. It was like, mm-hmm. no, it's just, it used the three letters N, S, and mm-hmm. A, mm-hmm. you know, adjacently. And so that uh, upset everybody. Besides, if the NSA had a key, they wouldn't put their name on it. They would, they would name it something else. So... Wow. Um, you know, I, I, again, I, there, you can't prove a negative, right? So there's no reason to believe that any Chinese camera has ever misbehaved, but suddenly everyone's looking up at them, you know, oh, gee, you know, is the, com- is the Chinese Communist Party spying on me through this camera? P- probably not, but, you know, it could be. So can't have that anymore. You need a lot of people monitoring those feeds 
Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of work. That's you could have an AI monitor it maybe and looking for some kinds of things. And I don't know. Yeah. Well, and again, you know, if, if anyone ever spotted the traffic flow from one of those, it would be you'd know. game over. Yeah. You'd know. Yes. Yeah. It, it would be, that was, that's the end of it. Right. So, right. You know, it's never happened. Microsoft, believe it or not, is going to embed Adobe's Acrobat PDF reader into Edge. They announced that it would embed Acrobat's PDF engine into future versions of their Edge browser. It'll be taking place place next month in March of 2023 for Edge versions on both Windows 10 and Windows 11. The FAQ that Microsoft created for this announcement to accompany the announcement was unsure about when Edge for Mac OS would receive the same PDF reader. They just said, quote, availability for Mac OS is coming in the future. We will have more to share at a later date, unquote. So since the uh, current Edge PDF engine will be removed on March 31st, 2024, meaning a year from now, I guess both PDF engines will be cohabitating during this changeover period, and presumably users will have a choice. And, you know, they were saying, you know, the Adobe Acrobat PDF Reader is the original. Nothing does as good a job. Nothing renders fonts as accurately. So we're just going to use theirs rather than, you know, who knows? We probably the, the, What's in there now is probably some descendant from GhostScript or some, you know, uh, I guess it's open source, right? Because the, the the Chromium engine is able to render PDFs. So anyway, they they decided to go proprietary and use the real Acrobat. So okay, um, okay. Now I've got some feedback from our listeners, and to everyone's credit, I think without exception, everybody was self conscious about still wanting to talk about passwords. <laughs> Because wow. because last last week I said, okay, we're done with this topic. Well, except we're not. Because, actually, there were some interesting other twists that people had. It's probably so, the single most widely used security tool, right? Yes. And that was my thinking, is it makes sense that people, this is of great interest to our listeners who are techie and are willing to, you know, really think about these things. And yes, you're right, Leo. It is it is the one thing that everybody it, it's everybody's collision with security is their password. So Alum, whose handle is at Dutch Physicist, he said, Hi Steve. Hope that's all hope that all is going well for you. I presume that you may not want to get back to the passwords topic again. And as I said, everybody sort of opened with that. He said, however, I'm curious of an aspect with the one-time passwords. They are based on a pre-shared key. You've discussed plenty about the mobile app options and et cetera for storing those keys on the client side. However, I've not seen much discussions about the protection of those pre-shared keys on the server side. Are they protected in HSMs, you know, hardware security modules, or some other mechanisms. I also have not heard of any breaches of those pre-shared keys. Maybe I'm being too paranoid, but I would appreciate your view on this. Best, Alum. So that's a great point. What one-time passcodes were designed to prevent was the capture and reuse 
of a static password. In, in you know, the recent so-called credential stuffing attacks that we were talking about, where that large database was a billions of previously stolen pass usernames and password combinations has been shown to be surprisingly effective due to people still reusing, you know, their password. Like, oh, this is my password, and I use it everywhere at multiple websites. So the success of this attempted reuse is blocked when, despite reusing a password, the site also requires the use of a time-varying six-digit secret passcode. The problem with these passcodes is, as Alum noted, that this still requires that every website keeps the shared secret secret. And this has historically been shown to be surprisingly difficult for websites to do. The inherent weakness of the one-time passcode system is that it uses symmetric cryptography, where each end shares the same secret. Another way of saying this is that the same secret is used to both create the passcode and to verify the passcode. And that's the weakness. What makes, for example, Squirrel and WebAuthn different is that by using asymmetric cryptography, each party in the system uses a different key, and the roles of the keys are different. The public key that's held by the website can only be used to verify an identity assertion created by using the user's private key. As I often said, Squirrel gives websites no secrets to keep, and WebAuthn is the same. By the use of asymmetric public key crypto, these systems, Squirrel and WebAuthn, only provide websites with a user's public key, which does not need to be kept secret, since the only thing it can be used for is to verify a user's identity claim. By comparison, a stolen symmetric key can also be used to assert a user's identity. If a website were to lose their one-time passcode symmetric keys, the bad guys could use those stolen keys to recreate the user's one-time passcode to spoof their identity and log in as them, because the system is symmetric. But if bad guys were to steal a user's public authentication key from a website, you know, using WebAuthn, it would be of zero use to them, since the only thing those keys can be used for is to verify a user's identity claim. That's a huge difference. Once this improved system, the asymmetric system, is universally deployed, hopefully it will be someday, online identity authentication will be significantly improved. Until then, we will continue to see escalations in attack cleverness. With the increased use of one-time passcodes, we've seen the bad guys circumvent its protections with the increased use of proxying attacks, where the user is visiting a spoofed intermediate page, which prompts for, receives, and forwards the user's one-time passcode on the fly, thus successfully accomplishing a real-time bypass of one-time passcode security. Anyway, great question. Um, James Housley 
He said, when I first switched from LastPass to Bitwarden, I also decided to keep using OTP auth for my one-time codes. While listening to SN909, I wondered if Bitwarden might be a better choice for some because it would only have a one-time code for the domain it is registered to. The same way a password manager prevents putting a password into a spoofed website. Oh, uh-huh. that's interesting. That is a really good point, which had not occurred to me before. So thank you for that, James. So, okay, now we have a dilemma. Giving your one-time passcode secrets to a password manager to use risks exposure of those secrets since they're no longer in a disconnected offline device. You get the benefit of cross-device synchronization. That's useful. But again, the secrets need to be kept secret. But as James points out, the advantage of using a strict URL matching deployment of those one-time passcodes is that unlike an unwitting user, the password manager would not be spoofed by a lookalike domain name. Okay, but since we assume that the password manager's anti-spoofing protection would first apply to its not gratuitously filling out the username and password on a spoofed site, we don't really also need it not to fill out our one-time passcode. It already protects us from divulging the first phase of our credentials. So, on balance, while I think that's, a, that's, a, that's a certainly worth observing that, I think that keeping one-time passcodes separate still provides optimal security. But, you know, definitely an interesting thought experiment. Um, okay, our VMware listener asking for anonymity sent to me, Hi, Steve. I'm a longtime listener of Security Now and now work at VMware on ESXi. Naturally, I just wanted to add a couple of comments on the most recent ESXi ARGS discussion. Overall, I thought the discussion was good, but I was a bit taken aback by the suggestion that VMware scan the Internet for exposed ESXi servers. You've never suggested such a thing for any other vendor, even Microsoft or QNAP, earlier in the episode. It definitely seems like it could work on a voluntary opt-in basis, but otherwise it seems untenable to me. It's been talked about quite a bit in the past in various contexts, but it's rather difficult at times to figure out who to contact if a vulnerable host is found. While I agree in theory that it would be nice if there was a quick and easy way to contact system admins of a particular system that's directly exposed to the Internet, it's quite difficult in practice, especially in a way that doesn't have far-reaching privacy implications. Fortunately, there is, oh, I'm sorry, furthermore, there is a free version of ESXi, which is popular with hobbyists and, who, and those just wanting to run VMs on a single server. ESXi is not just used by enterprises and IT professionals. On a brighter note, he said, I'm happy to report that starting in ESXi 8.0, all demons and long-running processes are sandboxed by default. 
and we've also added additional hardening to make it harder to run ELF binaries that don't come from the installed base system packages. So it's very cool to hear from someone at VMware. And as we note, he's right that I haven't previously been suggesting that all vendors proactively scan the Internet looking for vulnerable versions of their own software. But I truly think that this is something that we need to think about in the future. I have mentioned on several occasions that there is little doubt that malicious actors and likely state-level agencies are already scanning the Internet to create quick reaction databases of what is where, so that when a high-profile vulnerability is found, targeted attacks can be rapidly deployed. Why should only the bad guys have such databases? Once upon a time, Internet scanning itself was considered a hostile act. When I first created the Shields Up system, which was 24 years ago in September of 1999, and Leo, you were doing screensavers uh, at Tech TV at the time. Uh, I was periodically contacted by various network admins who were wondering why my IPs (laughs) were probing their networks. I explained that it was their own users inside their networks who were requesting that I check on the state of their network security. In most cases back then, they politely asked that I not honor such requests. So, Shields Up has always had a do-not-scan list of, of blocked IPs which it refuses to probe. Uh, and if someone tries to do that from in that such a network, it just pops up a notice and says, um, uh, your administrators, the administrators of your network, have requested that Shields Up not probe their networks. So, you know, go talk to them. Okay. But if such a system, like Shields Up, were to be launched today, 24 years later, not a single peep would be heard from anyone. The network admins of the world have all collectively given up on the entire idea of identifying all of the random crap, or really any of the random crap, that's now flying across the Internet. I mean, you know, there are still instances of Code Red and NIMDA infected Windows Mm. NT servers sending out Mm -hmm. packets, Mm -hmm. you know, looking for a vulnerable system. You know, and it was in, it was in acknowledgement of this that I eventually coined the term "internet background radiation." You know, oh gee, a neutrino just whizzed through my body. Where did it come from? Well, who knows, and who cares? Uh, <laughs> a NIMDA neutrino. <laughs> that's right, a NIMDA nu- neutrino. <laughs> so, my point is, scanning the internet was once unusual and attention-getting. It is no longer. And we've recently been talking about the moves we're seeing of multiple governments beginning to take the security of their own nation's networks into their own hands. So our VMware listener is correct that I have not been suggesting that other private vendors should be doing this, but something needs to change. You know, it would be amazing and wonderful if QNAP were to maintain a list of publicly exposed instances of their always buggy systems. At the same time, our listener brings up actually the most important point, which is 
Okay, what then? How do they contact the owners of the system that's publicly exposed? Bad guys don't need to contact anyone since they want to attack the systems. But good guys do need to contact someone since they want to remediate the trouble. The good news is our VMware listener said, quote, it's been talked about quite a bit in the past in various contexts, but it's rather difficult at times to figure out who to contact if a vulnerable host is found. So I guess the good news is the idea is sort of in the air. You know, but he's also correct about the privacy implications, which follow from any attempt to somehow make endpoints identifiable to everyone on the public Internet, right? Because they've, they've they would have to be everybody or no one. So we're left with the conundrum, which is created by the asymmetry of the fact that bad guys want to attack exposed systems while good guys only want to inform them. Uh, you know, and I am, you know, thankful that our VMware listener spoke up. Thank you. And I don't think there's a good answer right now. But the way things are going, it seems like we need one. Um, Brad Jones, he said, Steve, I know we're all tired of talking about the security of our passwords, but I'm interested in your thoughts on the following. Selecting a known Bitwarden master password that is already considered somewhat secure then running it through something like a base64 calculator to generate an actual password used to unlock the vault. As you would likely never remember the password, any time you need to unlock, you would run the known password through the calculator to generate the vault password. For example, although clearly you would never use password 12345678, that would generate the password you would use as your master password, which is, and then he has the, the base64 conversion, capital U, capital G, capital F, lowercase ZC3, DVCM, capital Q, lowercase X, and blah, blah, blah. You know, gibberish. He says, there are many desktop and mobile applications that can complete this calculation without running the known password through an online encoder or decoder. Okay, so algorithmic password generators are an interesting idea. The concept was to use an HMAC function, which is essentially a keyed hash function. So the user would generate a single secret permanent key, which would key the hash function. Um, they would then enter, for example, the domain they're visiting into the hash function and it would output an absolutely maximum entropy password. Since every domain would produce a different unique password, there would be no password reuse and there would also be nothing to remember per domain since any domain's password, any domain's password could be recreated on demand from the domain name itself. And actually, this is this was part of the, 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 the this was the germ of the idea of how Squirrel converts domain names into um, into private keys, which are then turned into public keys. And but even before that, this idea intrigued me so much that I wondered whether it might be possible to create a truly secure P 
paper-based encryption system, our longtime listeners may recall that the idea I hit upon and then developed was to traverse a per-user customized Latin square. I called the system off the grid. Since the passwords came from a grid and the system was offline and used no electricity. So anyway, Brad's idea uh, uh, was is right that you know, you know, to suggest yet another means of generating unique per site passwords that would uh, that that could be deployed using an algorithmic an algorithmic system based on something that could be input. And if you used a secret key and a hash function, uh, you could just use the domain as, as a place to start. Okay, Leo, our final break, and then I am going to introduce our listeners to something very new and very cool, ASCON, which has just received NIST standards Ooh. endorsement. It okay. is a new NIST standard for cryptography. All right. Careful what you're asking for. Ask you might get it. Right not after. what you can do for your <laughs> crypto. <country. laughs> First, though, a word from Fortra. F-O-R-T-R-A. You don't maybe know the name Fortra, but for 40 years, Help Systems is known, has been known for helping organizations become more secure and autonomous. Over the years, customers have shared that Help Systems has been so helpful, but it's still getting harder and harder to protect their data. Oh, it's true, isn't it? If you listen to this show, you know cyber threats evolve. They're more powerful than ever before. In an industry where the only constant is change, it turns out adaptability is the best way to grow in the right direction. Help System listened to their customers' concerns, problem-solved, and delivered with impressive results. And consequently, they are adapting a different company today. Help Systems, very important now, is now Fortra, your cybersecurity ally. F-O-R-T-R-A. Fortra continues the same people, first support, and best-in-class portfolio that you've come to expect from Help Systems. Fortra transformed the industry by creating a stronger line of defense from a single provider. They work with the top 10 Fortune 500 banks, the top 10 of the Fortune 500 banks in the world to keep them secure. That's a pretty good uh, endorsement, don't you think, for Fortra? Fortra's infrastructure also helps support kind of mission-critical installations like nuclear power grids and other important utility services. I think that's a pretty good endorsement for Fortra. Fortra's key area, I should say really areas of, of emphasis where technology meets humanity include securing infrastructure, securing, that's important on the grid, isn't it? And, and nuclear power plants, securing infrastructure, securing data, that's important for everybody, security awareness, and operational support. So let me talk about the different things Fortra can do for you. They've got professional security services. You know, everybody these days has has somebody on their team that's looking out for security, but you probably can use some help. From Fortra, you can get help with pen testing services. They have security consulting services. Always good to get a second opinion, right? Social engineering services help train you and your team how to avoid getting fished, for instance. They also can do red teaming exercises. 
You know, it's one thing to have a red team on your team, but you bring in the pros from Dover, the guys from outside to come in and, and attack your system. Yeah, that, that gets everybody on their toes, doesn't it? You bet. Fortra also has managed security services, including managed detection and response, managed data loss prevention, and IBM iSecurity services. So you can use Fortra uh, for you know consultancy. Uh, you can use them as an additional part of your security team. But you'll know one thing throughout every step of your journey, Fortra's experts are there determined to help increase security maturity while decreasing, this is important, the operational burden that comes with it. See, sometimes you say, oh, I can't afford to be more secure. You need Fortra. You can. Fortra understands we're all more powerful together, so they prioritize collaboration with customers throughout every step of their cybersecurity journey. And every customer is unique. Fortra knows that. For organizations, Fortra knows the road to creating a stronger, simpler future for cybersecurity begins with that daily commitment to listening to each individual concern and providing integrated, scalable services. They are there for you, with you. Check out all the critical solutions and experts that Fortra family has to offer, including through the combined intel of Fortra's Agari and Fish Labs solution. I'm sure you've heard of them. Fortra's quarterly threat trends and intelligence report. Oh, man, that is a super valuable resource that gives you an analysis of, you know, what's going on right now. The latest findings, insights into key trends shaping the threat landscape. You can't sit back and say, oh, I know everything that's happening. you gotta, you got to keep up, right? Fortra's approach is different. In pursuit of a better future for cybersecurity, they're driven by the belief that nothing is unsolvable. Fortra, positive change makers and your relentless ally in providing peace of mind through every step of your cybersecurity journey. Does that sound good to you? It should. Positive change makers, your relentless ally providing peace of mind through every step of your cybersecurity journey. Set yourself up for success. Go to Fortra.com. Check out one of their free trials or demos today. You owe it to yourself to learn more about Fortra. For 40 years as help systems, they've been doing this job they are on top of the modern, the latest technologies. They're here to be your ally, Fortra. Here's to a stronger, simpler future for cybersecurity. Who's in? Are you in? Visit Fortra.com to learn more. F-O-R-T-R-A, Fortra.com. F-O-R-T-R-A, Fortra.com. We thank him so much for supporting security now. All right, I'm ready to, I'm, I'm asking for a friend. What is asking? What is asking? <laughs> okay, so last Wednesday, the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology, you know, our NIST, announced that a family of authenticated encryption and hashing algorithms known collectively as ASCON, A-S-C-O-N, will be standardized for applications in lightweight cryptography. And lightweight cryptography does not mean less secure, as, as we'll see. So I'll have a little bit more to say about that in a second. This final selection was a result of a four-year competition, which ran from 2019 through just now, 2023, among competing proposals. This was the same process that led us to the selection of the Rheindahl cipher to become the official AES standard. So that's, you know, you know, Rheindahl is 
you know, military strength, if you'll pardon the expression, uh, ASCON has now become the standard for providing high 128-bit security for lower-end devices. So, so, and for example, there's an entire suite of symmetric cryptographic ASCON functions for the Arduino already exist. So NIST summarized the, the competitive selection process by writing, NIST has initiated a process to solicit, evaluate, and standardize lightweight cryptographic algorithms that are suitable for use in constrained environments where the performance of current NIST cryptographic standards is not acceptable. In August 2018, NIST published a call for algorithms to be considered for lightweight cryptographic standards with authenticated encryption with associated data. That's, you know, authenticated encryption associated data, AEAD. We'll get to more of that in a second. And optional hashing functionalities. The deadline for submitting algorithms has passed. NIST received 57 submissions to be considered for standardization. After the initial review of the submissions, 56 were selected as first-round candidates. Of the 56 first-round candidates, 32 were selected to advance to round two. So they were, you know, whittling them down. Okay, so what exactly does lightweight crypto mean? Rather than aiming for the highest conceivably needed security, which will be adequate to protect data for, you know, the next several decades at least, NIST's lightweight cryptography competition was set up to select the contemporary crypto system that would be best suited for deployment on today's much more limited IoT systems. This means that, for example, while sharing the same 128-bit block length as the Rheindahl AES cipher, you know, because a cipher's block length really cannot be reduced much below 128 bits without compromising security, the key lengths can safely be reduced by half to 128 bits. This allowed the use of a family of faster, more efficient, and easier-to-implement algorithms, which can run efficiently on much lighter-weight hardware. Okay, now, some have wondered whether dropping the key length in half to 128 bits is sufficient for contemporary security. The fact is, it's still insanely plenty of security. We only went to 256-bit keys because why not? If we have desktop and server machines and there's virtually, you know, on those platforms, virtually no cost for doubling the key length. You know, on the other hand, those are those are expensive algorithms, which is why Intel has now specific AES instructions, because some of the things that AES requires the processor to do are extremely time-consuming. So Intel said, okay, let's put some instructions to, to speed up AES into our microcode, and they've been there now for a while. Well, if AES weren't hard to do, Intel would have never done, you know, cipher-specific instructions. ASCON doesn't need any of that, as an example. So the point is, we did 256 bits because we could. 
So let's examine the implications first of 128 bits. 2 to the 128, right? The number of combinations, the number of possible keys, that's 3.4 times 10 to the 38th. So that's, you know, 34 followed by 37, 37 zeros. Okay, now say that we want to brute force the keys value. And for the sake of argument, let's say that it would be possible. It's not. But say that it would be possible to completely test a candidate key at the full clock rate, say, 3.4 gigahertz of a GPU. You know, it's not possibly it's not possible to actually do that since a GPU, fast as they are, still require many clock cycles to get any work done. But for the sake of this thought experiment, say that it was possible to fully test one 256-bit key every clock cycle at 3.4 gigatests per second. Okay, so that's 3.4 times 10 to the 9, right? 3.4 gigahertz gigatests per second brute force tests per second each each clock cycle we're we're doing a brute force test we can't but for the argument let's say we could to test all possible 128 bit keys where there are 3.4 times 10 to the 38th possible keys we divide 3.4 times 10 to the 38th by 3.4 giga tests per second. That's 3.4 times 10 to the ninth. So we just subtract 9 from 38, yielding 29. This tells us that testing candidate keys, 128-bit candidate keys at the rate of 3.4 billion tests per second, which no actual system is even capable of coming close to doing, we would need 10 to the 29 seconds to brute force all combinations. Okay, now, there are only 31.5 million seconds per year. If we triple that, it brings us to 94.5 million, which is close to 100 million. So we'll round that up to 10 to the 8th, which is 100 million. So 8 from 29 leaves 21. Thus, brute forcing a 128-bit secret key at 3.4 billion guesses per second, which is not possible, would require roughly 3 times 10 to the 21 years. Given that we all generally live less than 10 to the 2 years, we're left with plenty of security margin. In other words, 128-bit security Although, you know, we're so used to talking about, you know, thousands of bits for asymmetric uh, key strength and 256 bits or more for AES and Rindall, 128-bit security is an insanely ample amount of security. And now, thanks to this device-constrained cryptographic competition, we have this super strong security available to lightweight embedded processors. NIST's, which don't need any special instructions because it's all simple. NIST's original call for submissions explained their target, you know, their need as follows. They said, the deployment of small computing devices such as RFID tags, industrial controllers, sensor nodes, 
and smart cards is becoming much more common. The shift from desktop computers to small devices brings a wide range of new security and privacy concerns. In many conventional cryptographic standards, the trade-off between security, performance, and resource requirements was optimized for desktop and server environments, and this makes them difficult or impossible to implement in resource-constrained devices. When they can be implemented, their performance may not be acceptable. Lightweight cryptography is a subfield of cryptography that aims to provide solutions tailored for resource-constrained devices. There's been a significant amount of work done by the academic community related to lightweight cryptography. This includes efficient implementations of conventional cryptography standards and the design and analysis of new lightweight primitives and protocols. Okay, so the winner was ASCON a family of authenticated encryption and hashing algorithms, which are not only designed to be lightweight and easy to implement, but also with added countermeasures against side-channel attacks. And ASCON was not only selected to be NIST's new lightweight crypto standard, but it was also pre- it also previously won the same spot in the CSER competition, which ran for five years, from 2014 through 2019. CESAR, C-A-E-S-A-R, is the acronym for, comp- for Competition for Authenticated Encryption, Security, Applicability, and Robustness. And yes, that's clearly one of those reverse-engineered acronyms that's always a bit awkward. So ASCON is also CESAR's primary choice for lightweight authenticated encryption. And of course, during the NIST competition, it was already obvious that ASCON had won the CSER competition since that closed in 2019. So really, the question was, is there anything more that we know now subsequent to the CSER competition that is better than ASCON? And the answer, no. You know, there were more than 50 submissions of other things, and ASCON was it. You know, and I've I've mentioned authenticated encryption here. Uh, we've talked about the need in the past for both encrypting the data for privacy and also authenticating the data to prevent its manipulation at any time. And assuming that the two steps of encryption and authentication are separate, as they were originally, we've examined the question of in which order the two operations should be accomplished. The universal agreement is that you first encrypt and then you apply authentication to the encrypted result. The reason is on the receiving decrypting end, the message is first authenticated to assure it has not been tampered with, not modified in any way, and only if it authenticates should the message then be decrypted. This prevents the use of some very subtle attacks that we discussed years ago. But the use of so-called authenticated encryption offers a better solution. As its name implies, authenticated encryption algorithms are able to perform both operations at the same time. And there's one very valuable extension to this known as 
Authenticated Encryption and Associated Data, or AEAD for short. AEAD algorithms allow the so-called associated data to remain unencrypted and in the clear while still being encapsulated within the authentication envelope. So you can see it, but you can't change it. Um, I have some experience using these algorithms since Squirrel's local on-disk identity storage format needed to have some local storage which would always be left, well, some that would be kept encrypted on the disk, but also some other that, for example, the user's settings, which would need to be available all the time, even without the user's key. And the whole thing, you know, the the entire entire package needed to be tamper-proof. So I chose to use the AES-GCM cipher, which is an AEAD cipher. This perfectly resolved the need for having both secret and non-secret data that could not be altered without breaking the authentication of the whole. So in any event, what we're getting is, in this lightweight competition, is an AEAD cipher, which is going to be extremely useful. It's what NIST wanted, and it's the contest-winning technology that ASCON provides to IoT devices. Um, It also brings and provides similar features to hashing, because ASCON did also offer a hashing technology and actually a lot more. It was designed by a team of cryptographers from the Graz University of Technology, Infineon Technologies, Lamar Security Research, and Radboud University. So its bullet points, that is, of its benefits, are authenticated encryption and hashing with fixed or variable output length with a single lightweight permutation. And I'll be talking about this permutation in a second. Provably secure mode with keyed finalization for additional robustness, easy to implement in hardware and software, lightweight for constrained devices. It's got small state, meaning not much storage needed, a simple permutation box, and robust mode. Fast in hardware, fast in software, pipelineable, bit-sliced. It has a bit-sliced 5-bit S-box for 64-bit architectures, scalable, for more conservative security or higher throughput, timing resistance, no table lookups or additions, side channel resistance, the S-box is optimized for countermeasures, the key size equals the tag size equals the security level. That is, they're all 128 bits. Minimal overhead, the cipher cipher text length equals the plain text length, so there's, there's no padding needed. Single pass online encryption and decryption, and it uses a nonce. So the NIST requirements were for a key size no shorter than 128 bits, and there could be a family of variants having different parameter lengths. The design targets were interesting. NIST wrote, Submitted AEAD algorithms and optional hash function algorithms should perform significantly better in constrained environments, meaning hardware and embedded software platforms, compared to current NIST standards. They should be optimized to be efficient for short messages, as short as 8 bytes. 
compact hardware implementations and embedded software implementations with low RAM and ROM usage should be possible. The performance uh, on ASIC, you know, application-specific integrated circuits, on ASIC and FPGA should consider a wide range of standard cell libraries. The algorithms should be flexible to support various implementation strategies, low energy, low power, low latency. The performance on microcontrollers should consider a wide range of 8-bit, 16-bit, and 32-bit microcontroller architectures. For algorithms that have a key, the pre-processing of a key in terms of computation time and memory footprint should be efficient. The implementations of the AEAD algorithms and the optional hash function algorithms should lend themselves to countermeasures against various side channel attacks, including timing attacks, simple and differential power analysis, and simple and differential electromagnetic analysis. Designs may make trade-offs between various performance requirements. A submission is allowed to prioritize certain performance requirements over others. To satisfy the stringent limitations of some constrained environments, it may not be possible to meet all performance requirements stated in the previous paragraph. The submission document should, however, explain the bottlenecks that were identified and the trade-offs that were made. And basically, no trade-offs were necessary. ASCON does it all. So we now have a new family of power, memory, and general resource efficient algorithms that have been studied and pounded on now for years by many academics and cryptographers. GitHub offers implementations in C, C with some assembly, Python, Java, and Rust. And there's also RISC-V implementations as well. I have links to everything here in the show notes. GitHub also has an ASCON suite of cryptographic functions all based on what's known as, and I mentioned this before, the ASCON permutation. The permutation is the core cryptographic function at the heart of ASCON, highly efficient, super secure, now proven. That GitHub page provides the open source code for the following functions. We've got, of course, authenticated encryption with associated data. We've got hashing. We've got a pseudo-random function, a message authentication code, an HMAC-based key derivation function, hashed message authentication code, you know, an HMAC. We have uh, AEAD with side channel protections. We've got a keyed message authentication code, a KMAC, password-based key derivation functions, PBKDF, a pseudo-random number generator, synthetic initialization vector, extensible output functions, and direct access to the ASCON permutation. All of those are available through the API of, of the code here uh, at, at the, uh, it's git, github.com slash rweather, R-W-E-A-T-H-E-R, slash ASCON hyphen suite. And there is a related page with all of the same functions for the Arduino. So the industry, as I said, has a robust and seriously secure set of lightweight functions which have already been ported to many languages, platforms, and hardware, which are tuned for and suited for the needs of embedded, resource-constrained IoT-style devices. And I obviously already made the case that 128-bit key length, that is just fine. 
It'll last us our lifetime and, well, what, 10 to the 18 times more. So why not just replace AES? Why not replace Rheindahl with this? Uh, you really could. Um, that I mean, that the, I think they 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 went high. Rheindahl is available in two fifty six bit, three eighty four bit, and five twelve bit key lengths. So you could just go insane <laughs> with Rheindahl. Um, you know, I I agree. I, I you know. I, it, Do you need to? I guess is the question. And and even if you went to five twelve, would it survive a quantum computer? Well, this is all symmetric, and quantum computers oh, do matter. not attack symmetric right, ciphers right, at all. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, uh, if I have any need in the future, I'll be using these because you know, Ascon, it's had its, uh, you know, it's 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 been really picked over now for many years, and you can imagine that the the fifty other submissions. They were tr- they were trying to find a problem with Ascon in order to have theirs chosen, but they couldn't. I think you know this would be good for PGP uh, to replace. I think they're using triple desk for the symmetric key. It would be a nice yeah. nice improvement. <laughs> yeah. Not that speed is a big issue, but still, uh, just something that's easier to implement. Maybe and it's interesting. Ascon, yeah, huh? We have it now. We got it. Thanks to our weather, whoever that is. Is our weather yeah. a person or is it? Uh, I didn't look yeah. uh, to, to to see, but but basically, you're taking the 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 core uh, innovation, which is this permutation box, which is well defined, and then you're building all these other functions around it, and yeah. we sort of know how to do that now. I the feeling our weather is a person. Who's just really Might good be. at this stuff? Yeah, he, he may have just done an, a, an implementation yeah. of these functions. Yeah, interesting. Uh, wow, you know what? This is great. Uh, you learn so much listening to this show, uh, and you stay up to date. And I know that's why so many people in cybersecurity and IT listen to Security Now, and we're glad you do. I hope you'll keep listening. Uh, get a copy of this show from Steve. Probably the best way to get the bandwidth impaired sixteen kilobit version. <laughs> <laughs> or the transcripts. He's got uh, he's got human written transcripts, which is very nice to read along or use for searching. All 910 episodes. That's all at grc.com. While you're there, pick up Spinrite, world's best mass storage recovery and maintenance utility. 6.0 is the current version, but 6.1 is imminent. If you buy now, you'll get an co- upgrade to 6.1 for free. So do that. You can also participate in the development of 6.1. And there's lots of other great free stuff, including a chance to leave your feedback for Steve at grc.com slash feedback. He also is on Twitter, uh, and his DMs are open at sggrc, at sggrc. Uh, we have copies of the show at our website, twit.tv slash sn. There's 64 kilobit audio in our unique form video, so you can see Steve's giant mug. <laughs> in in the flesh, as it were. Uh, go to twit.tv slash SN. There's a Security Now YouTube channel dedicated. Uh, you can also subscribe in your favorite podcast player. It doesn't matter. Steve's site or our site, subscribe. You'll get the same high-quality version of the show, uh, and uh, it all counts towards downloads, so we appreciate that. Um, let's see. What else should I tell you about? Oh, if you want to watch us do it live, that's the freshest version. That doesn't. We don't really count the 
the, the number of people watching live. So if you're going to do that, please download a copy anyway. That way you got it for your library and all that. But if you want to watch live, we do it uh, every Tuesday right after Mac Break Weekly. That's usually between 1.30 and 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern. Uh, be uh, 2200 UTC if you want to watch live at live.twit.tv. If you're watching live, chat live in our IRC, our Internet Relay Chat. Uh, yes, traditional, old school, baby, irc.twit.tv. Uh, if you want to be a little more modern, we have a Discord chat for our club members. That's a great hang, too, by the way, all day long and all night long. A great hang. It's a great hang, man. Go <laughs> but you got to be a member, 7 bucks a month. What do you get? Ad-free versions of everything, including this show. You get uh, the uh, Discord. You get the Twit Plus feed with shows we don't put out anywhere else, like Hands on Mac with... Micah Sargent, Hands on Windows with Paul Therott, The Untitled Linux Show, The Giz Fizz, Stacey's Book Club, a whole lot more. Uh, all the interviews and specials we do as well. Uh, Twit.tv slash Club Twit. If you're not yet a subscriber, do us a solid. Uh, it, it makes a big difference to our bottom line. Right now we have about 6,000 members. There are 700,000 people who listen every month to our shows. If we could just get 10%, we wouldn't even need ads. We could just say... It's done. We're happy. And the other 90% could continue to enjoy <laughs> the uh, the show uh, ad-free as well. See, it's easy. Twit.tv slash club twit. Steve, have a wonderful week. We will see you next week with another great edition of Security Now. I'll be back. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I am Ant Pruitt, and I am the host of Hands-On Photography here on Twit TV. I know you got yourself a fancy smartphone, you got yourself a fancy camera, but your pictures are still lacking. Can't quite figure out what the heck shutter speed means? Watch my show. I got you covered. Want to know more about just the ISO and exposure triangle in general? Yeah, I got you covered. Or if you got all of that down, you want to get into lighting, you know, making things look better by changing the lights around you. I got you covered on that too. So Check us out each and every Thursday here on the network. Go to twit.tv slash hop and subscribe today. Security now.